Welcome to Silvacast, the podcast about all things silviculture. My name is Brad Hutnick. And I'm Greg Edge. And we're both silviculturists with the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources and your host for today's show. Greg, I have a real treat for you today, my friend. Mm. I'm going to expand your palate and have you taste some of these fine bourbons that I purchased at the gas station across the street. Gas station? Must I? Uh, it's 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 spring green. We have quality is all around you in spring green. Now, you know, it all burns the same to me, Brad. No, 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 no. Now, you need to really appreciate the, the complex nature of a fine bourbon. Okay. So, okay, let's try this one. It seems that I must. No, 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 no. This is this is not some wild wine tasting, Greg. Now, don't swirl it around all place and up in the air like some kind of milkshake. Okay. Slowly bring it to your nose and breathe breathe in the flavors. Ooh. So that's good. Now, let's see. I get like a, a toasted oak with a, with a hint of a earthy leather. What do you smell? Uh, Vicks Vapor Rub. No, no. Be serious. Now, okay. Well, anyways, try tasting it. Now, let's slowly just a little sip here. Now, what do you get? Oh, yeah. Yeah, Brad. I, I can smell something. The flavors are, let's see. It's sweet. And buttery, I know, Schnecken. Um, Schnecken? Oh, yeah, Schnecken. They're those German cinnamon rolls my mom used to make. Uh, I, I give up trying to culture you, Greg. But in any event, did you know that each bourbon must be stored in a new charred white oak barrel and aged to infuse these complex flavors and colors? It's just one of the many things that make white oak such an interesting and important tree species. So today on Silvacast, we'll be talking with Jeff Stringer, professor and chair of the Department of Forestry and Natural Resources at the University of Kentucky, about all things White Oak, including the White Oak Initiative, a diverse coalition of partners from across eastern and central United States dedicated to the long-term sustainability of America's White Oak forests. Now I see where you're going with this, and it'll be great to visit with Jeff Stringer again. Maybe we can try the gas station whiskey on him. Now, a word from our sponsors. Since 1940, foresters across North America have relied on Nelson Paint for tree marking solutions. Nelson Paint manufactures paint designed to withstand the harshest weather conditions in the field and Nelspot tree marking guns that last the test of time. Visit nelsonpaint.com to learn more about their products. And now back to our show. Jeff Stringer, welcome to Silvacast. It's good to see you again. That's great to be here. Hey, before we get started, would you tell our audience uh, a little bit about where you work and what you do, Jeff? So I'm chairman of the University of Kentucky Department of Forestry and Natural Resources. Um, I've been in that um, administrative position for about six years now. Prior to that, I was an extension hardwood silviculture and forest operations specialist uh, here in Kentucky. I'm a tree physiologist by training, which doesn't help you much on a logging operation. But, <laughs> and so I've, I've done a lot of work on high quality timber production and the operations and, you know, uh, getting that out of the woods, um, involved with a number of different species. And white oak happens to be one of them that we have a lot of in our state. Uh, it's commercially important. We produce a lot of it. And, and of course, then we've done a lot of silviculture and operations research um, associated with it and technology and science delivery technology transfer. Jeff, you mentioned that 
you started as a tree physiologist. So what got you into thinking about trees or forests in general? Well, it's um, I've, my family farms. And so we've always been involved with, with growing things. And uh, being down here in the South, growing trees is a big deal. And so uh, I thought, well, uh, the family can grow corn and soybeans. I can grow trees. And so uh, my interest in forestry really came about because of that. Uh, we have a lot of students here as probably uh, are in a lot of other schools that become in for, uh, be, uh, become interested in forestry because of being outdoors and and that kind of thing and and being able to hang out in the woods. I came at it from the standpoint of wanting to grow trees. So uh, uh, I didn't start out trying to grow white oak trees, but uh, that's what it eventually morphed into. Uh, we we've had a lot of guests that have originated on the farm. Yeah, I think that was Patrick Bro said he got his fire interest because part of his farm burned. Yeah. yeah. Maybe that's what we have to do, Greg, as a part of uh, forest management. We have to start early, you know, like a farm system, literally, where we have to send kids to a farm before uh -huh. they can go into forestry. Right. -dum -dum. Yeah, good one, Brad. You know, and this is kind of, uh, Jeff, this is a little bit of old home days for both of us because we both met you through the NAS program. So uh, we were both at the Robinson Forest uh, with you doing the tours, doing things. And I always remember the... Um, there was, we were, we were there, we were looking at some of the water quality things and there was an active timber sale nearby and we went up to it. And, and I just remember that you had a really good interaction with loggers too. Like, like they were, you could talk to them. Sometimes you, you talk to people in academia and academia and loggers might not get along, but I thought you were really unique that way. Well, I think part of it is, you know, being an extension for as long as I have been and probably having, um, you know, we, we were talking about coming coming from the farm, right? So you were coming from, you know, a family and an, an overall environment that was very hands-on, right? And and I think the loggers appreciate that. Yeah, I'm director of the Kentucky Master Logger Program, which is a, a state-required program. Um, all operations have to have a trained master logger inside. So I've I've had a tr had a hand in training all loggers in Kentucky since 1992. So I've been around a lot of loggers. Yeah, I just remember you gave us uh, explicit instructions to not <laughs> call you Doctor Stringer in front of the loggers. Yes, that we don't want it. We I have very little credibility as it is. <laughs> Calling me a doctor would pretty much shoot it right there. <laughs> I thought that was yeah. great. Yeah, no, I I love that the time we spent on the Robinson Forest because just looking at what you guys were doing for some of your management and it was a, for me it was a good contrast to what we had seen in Kentucky and some other places. So I thought it was really really good. I think it's it's interesting to get around and and see civil culture being done in different places, right? Um, yep. You know, we talk a little bit about about mention White Oak and White Oak. If you look at the range of it, basically it's all over the eastern U.S., right? So growing yep. in the Appalachian Mountains, you got it growing in the Ozarks, which are you know significantly different, right? You got it in Lake States and Northern Alabama. So um, it's a species that, you know, because of its geographic spread, right? There's a lot of different things you could do. And there's a lot of, a lot of interesting things that uh, civil culturally um, you can do with it and need to do with it, you know, just based on the competitors that you have, right? The suite of competitors that you have in the different places and site qualities and all that kind of thing. So it's interesting as a species, it's interesting from that standpoint. Are there states east of the Mississippi that don't have white oak? No, it's pretty much it. I mean, if you look at the range of it, it's, I mean, I'm sure Maine's got three or four trees in it, right? So um, <laughs> they, they've got some, but no, it's got a, it's got a huge yeah. range. Now the bulk of it, uh, when you talk about what we call what I, well, what I call the sourcing area, 
right? So that's that middle central hardwoods, right from the Ozarks all the way over straight east to the Appalachians, right? And, and you know, up through the middle Ohio, mid, you know, middle Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, not to leave Michigan out or Wisconsin or anybody, right? But, and then down to the northern tier of northern Alabama, northern Mississippi, northern Georgia. That's where the bulk of it comes from. You know, that's probably what 60, 70 easy percent of the supply, if you look at volume, you know, and that's where most of the growing stock is at as well. Having said that, right, um, it's in lake states, right? And, you know, you've got woodland owners up there that have white oak present in it. And if you've got white oak presence in your woods, it means something, you know, especially now, because it's a seller's market for white oak. Um, you know, red oak's gone down the toilet, so to speak, <laughs> as yeah. been. And we can all we're we're old enough that most of us anyhow can remember where you know red oak was outpacing white oak. You know? Oh yeah, sure. And um, and we we lost the price support on red oak with the Asian market. That was what was holding it up. And you know, but since yeah. then, um, you know, white white oak's really dominated. And we get to a little bit higher quality stuff and the veneer, the stave logs for making barrels out of, you know, we can't have any knots in it and stuff. So, um, you know, it's commanding a pretty good price and will be for some time. So it, I think it's going to be a seller's market for white oak, you know, for quite a while, not forever, but for quite a while, which is a good thing if you got it. Jeff, can you say something to sort of the status of the white oak resource, sort of what is, what are the long-term trends with it? Yeah. So white oak is, you know, we got a lot of growing stock out there, right? You got, you know, mm -hmm. tens of millions of acres of, you know, where white oak is, you know, prevalent is important in the overstory, right? You have very few monoculture stands. I mean, that happens every once in a while, right? But mm -hmm. um, where it's important, you know, part of the, part of the system. And so we've got a lot of that. And if you look broadly speaking, so if, if you look at the age class distribution, right, you're most of our most of our white oak forests region wide are running in that in that 70 to 80 year range right now. OK, so from the standpoint, even though white oak doesn't grow fast and you're talking about what, 16, 18, 20 inch trees. Right. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of volume standing out there right now. So we don't have a supply issue uh, in, in the short term. However, if you start looking at medium and higher quality sites throughout the range, okay, so particularly east of the Mississippi River, okay, um, there on those, on those, on those higher quality, so think in terms of Upland Oak site index, you know, of 70 and up. Mm -hmm. So you're having really hard time regenerating white oak. So you may have, you may have 20, 30, 40% even of the basal area in white oak, dominant, co-dominant white oaks, right? So in the overstory. Um, and those kind of stands on higher quality site are having a hard time regenerating, right? You can get seedlings on the ground um, from the acorn production, but there's so much shade on the ground that those seedlings that you have a trouble with recruitment, right? So you get the initial um, one foot tall seedlings, but you can't grow them into three, four, five foot tall and eventually sapling and that kind of thing. Um, and, and particularly in areas where you've got yellow poplar as a competitor, because on the higher quality sites, mm. yellow poplar will just outpace sure. it. I mean, it'll outpace mm. Northern Red Oak, right? Um, you know, on the right site. So um, White Oak, where even though it's present now, 
on those site index 70 and up sites, you have a really hard time regenerating it with traditional regeneration methods, okay? And, and uh, the reason that is, of course, that shade on the ground is coming from mesification. So that's where you have your understories of red maple, sugar maple, American beech, those kind of things that are shade tolerant are coming in underneath, um, uh, underneath the overstory. And that's creating the significant shade on the ground, which is stopping the recruitment of the oaks. Now that applies to Northern red oak too, for example, right, right. on higher quality mm -hmm. sites. So very similar story sounds like to a lot of the upland oak species. You got that big even-aged bubble at sitting at 70, 80 years old, but not much coming in behind it except on those lower site index yeah, sites. Exactly. And, we've, and we have we've known about this. So, you know, this this issue with with maintaining the up uh, the upland oaks, we've known about this for a long time. I mean, you know, we were right. talking about this back in the 80s, right? Or before. Right. Uh, yep. And we all understand why past history, you know, so we don't, you know, Smokey Bear comes along, right? And, and uh, you know, we're not grazing hogs in the woods and and all those kind of uh, factors that are high disturbance, right? Uh, factors that, that oaks love. And you stop doing all that, which all of us would say is probably a pretty good thing, right? But that's what's led to the mesification. There we go. So, you know, we've got normal bile. A lot of people ask the question, are we, is the harvesting the problem? That's not what, the, well, it doesn't help it, but that's not what's causing our problem. What's causing our problem is normal biological, you know, function, right? It is the mesification. That's just normal biology, you know, and the woods is trying to adjust back to before we disturbed it so much. <laughs> and we're going to see the loss of the oak in the system. And, and of course, oak, particularly white oak, right, is the most, one of the most palatable acorns we have, right? White oak certainly more palatable for wildlife than, than red oak. So it's a great hard mass species. You know, you know, the Wild Turkey Federation can get behind it, okay? Uh, Neotropical yep. migrant people can get behind it, right, uh, for nesting and those kind of things. So it's a species that has a lot of interest in in and from different groups and different uses, right, um, to try to to try to keep it in the system if we can. So it's one of those good species that you know. That, that the industrial side of things can get behind, right? So, um, you know, we're, whether it's, you know, veneer or lumber or barrels, those kind of things, pallets, what everybody can get behind it. And, and so could, you know, uh, the wildlife contingent and, and landowners and interest in wildlife and those kind of things. So it's a great species to kind of rally support for as far as management goes. So if I'm hearing you right, so it sounds like our disturbance has changed. Right, like our disturbance regime. Maybe historically we had that fire, and now we don't have it. But we're still harvesting. We're still doing things. Um, are there other things that are contributing? I think of like our experience here in the Lake States. We might look at some sites and see invasive species can adding to that mesification. Do you guys have problems with that as well? Well, it does happen in places, right? So the invasives. I mean, yeah. who doesn't have some type of invasive species? And so, um, yeah. but it's not generally. Um, I don't. Think, I mean, of all, all the issues we have, I'm less worried, and I think we have, from white oak in particular, we have less worry on invasive species, okay? Uh, and they, I can't, you you know, nothing's a, an absolute, of course, right? You know, right. But right. but the majority of our problem is that natural mesification issue, okay? Um, more so than we have to worry about tree of heaven or, some, you know, whatever might occur. We have bush honeysuckle, you know, in parts of Kentucky, that's a real problem, but not in the white oak area so much. So, 
Yeah, I think in basis, we don't have a fern problem, for example, and that kind of thing through a lot of the range now that everybody in Pennsylvania listens to this go, what are you talking about, right? <laughs> yeah, right. So, um, but, and we don't have a particularly large browse problem necessarily for natural region, right? So I think I think it's more of a just general natural native mesification issue, okay? Um, that That is the culprit here for white oak. You think uh, high grading is playing a role too? I mean, as far as that mesification, kind of taking out overstory, releasing what's underneath it? Yeah, it could. Um, it could be. I mean, you know, high grading forever. High grading is not bad if you got plenty of susceptible growing stock coming behind, right? It, so, right, you know, right. Um, but yeah. it's when you don't, and that's that's our problem because you can't. Now, white oak's kind of unique, and one reason we haven't had as much problem with what in thinking about you know we're talking about our upland oaks and having trouble regenerating them we've known it for a while and 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 a lot of that interest initially when we started finding it out was it was something like northern red oak right that was sustaining a lot of value at the time you know we were trying to pull it through on higher quality sites which has the ability to grow on and we and we couldn't do it you know um and so i think with with white oak though it's got some shade tolerance and that's where it differs. So if, if you think about the spectrum of shade tolerance, right? We're the ones that's, we're the ones that put a, a classification system, right? But it's a continuum, okay? And so um, white oak is about the most shade tolerant oak that we have, okay? So that helps you a little bit because now um, it, it'll, it'll stand up and, you know, be, hang in there as an intermediate crown class tree for quite some time, you know, where Northern red oak might fade out after 30 years, you know, in, in the, as an intermediate crown class or an overtop crown class tree, right? Because the shade tolerance, white oak will hang in there for a while. And, and initial, so if you think about it, if you have the pole size size class in a woods and you're selectively, if you ask the loggers, what are you doing? I'm selectively harvesting, right? So they're high grading, right? Or diameter limit cutting. Um, and and it, as long as you can keep enough of that going on and have that pole size white oak in there that still has physiological vigor to it, see, white oak will per, help perpetuate itself in, in that environment. Now, eventually, though, it's going to quit. I mean, it's, it's going to get to a point where it gets 80 years old, it gets flat top, it's physiologically, you know, shot, you know, right, and just because it's been right. suppressed for a long time. So a little bit of canopy disturbance, as long as you've got that pole size white oak that has the ability to respond physiologically, right? It can withstand that some, right? Now don't, you know, we don't want to run out there and say, oh, Stringer said high grading's fine and everything. No, <laughs> that's not what I said. Uh, but white oak has kept itself going a little bit because of that. Yeah, I know our foresters play more to that little bit of shade tolerance and also a little bit of less browse preferred than red oak and so sometimes those little mm -hmm. tweaks work to its advantage yeah and you can and so what we're finding out and we've done a lot of research on mid-story removal oak shelter wood those kind of things right to uh to try to help white oak in, in or upland oaks and white oak too um and what i'm i'm and now that i'm at the end of my career I have what I think is some reasonable thoughts about a few things, right? So you've seen a lot of growing seasons go by and watched a lot of things happen and seen a lot of failures, right? Including some stuff we do in research. 
I'm pretty convinced that because of that shade, so white, so oaks are intermediate shade tolerance, period, right? Okay. And most of our silvicultural systems, and I think most foresters that have thought about this very, very long have figured this out, right? We have a very simplistic way of thinking about silviculture here in the US, okay? And one of the reasons we do is because when things started, when shit come along, right? And they were developing the first forestry schools in the US, we didn't know anything. So they had to simplify it, right? Make it, make it simple for our stupid Americans, right? And so, you know, and we had this even age, uneven age thought process going on. And we had things like, when you have an intermediate practice, you don't worry about regeneration, right? All you're worrying about is cultivating, you know, the trees that are out there in the overstory, whatever, um, you know, crop tree release, all those kind of things, you know, thinnings and that kind of thing. And we don't, don't think about regeneration till it's time to do a regeneration harvest. Well, I see, I think with oaks, I think that's screwing, that thought is screwing us up. And I think with white oak is the same way. I think we have to start thinking about regeneration, which is a process, not of an event. That's a common saying now that's been used for quite some time. And we have to start building that regeneration, that advanced regeneration pool, you know, well before we're thinking about a regeneration harvest. And we've got some research going on now where we're going, okay, we've got a, a uh, basically we did a clear cut, let's say we got a, we got a 20 year old regenerating stand and the white oaks are getting, you know, are, are, are getting beat out by, by the red oaks and the yellow poplar and this and that and the other. And we're doing research now to hold some of that white oak in place so you don't lose it at 20 years into the rotation, right? Because once you lose that advanced regeneration of pole material, sapling and, and the advanced regeneration of small, you know, the small saplings and stuff, trying to get them back is really hard. So we're thinking now, do we actually start to build silvicultural systems that keep that that smaller size white oak around, you know, for regenerational purposes later on, stump sprouting or whatever it might be. And we can we maintain bigger. It's not an uneven age system because that's outside of group selection. That won't work. We know that, you know, but maybe we got to do a hybrid because you are dealing with an intermediate shade tolerant group of species in, in case of the oaks, a genera, right? Uh, and um, uh, that has to, and requires advanced regeneration uh, b before regeneration harvest or event. And that's just different, right? And and we don't think enough about that. And I think the simplicity of our civil culture systems now and think of uneven, even age, I mean, all those kind of, all those practices you do that fit it nicely into those two containers, I think is what's causing us problem with the oaks. So does that mean, mean that, Jeff, that thinking about that shade tolerance and maybe getting a little bit more of a complex system that maybe these systems are going to look more like irregular types of shelter wood systems? Yeah, they could be. They could be. And and the main thing is you got to control. See, the, the growing the oak is not the problem. It's the competitors, right? That's the problem. If you do all the way with all the competitors, we grow oak all day long, right? I mean, that just makes sense. Right. So the, the right. issue is the competition and, and getting the competition uh, control. And that's where, but you know, we, you mentioned Patrick Bros, right? So when he was at Clemson, he, he did that. 
you know, his, his PhD research was looking at, you know, a, a yellow poplar white oak mixed stand when it was young, right? They burn it. And of course, the white oak doesn't have any root because it's putting all the carbon in the top, right? So when you burn it, it's smoked. And, and the oaks have a fair amount of carbohydrate they put in a root system, right? Conservative growth development, right? And, and the oak sprouted back and it all kind of worked. Well, first of all, you can never burn like that because you can't figure out. I mean, it, you know, <laughs> doing the burn at the right time, those kind of things is really hard to do, right? But, but, but there was something to it because what happened is if you take that competitor out, the oak's fine, right? So think about mesification. You got we we have we have forests down here that have both sugar and red maple and American beech. And we don't have a heavy American beech like you get into like the Alleghenies, like West Virginia, you know, and, and the Appalachians where you got reagent grade beech, right? So it's it's really <laughs> yeah. tough. But but we have a lot of red maple, but and it's all the same, you know, for yeah. and it and so can we get rid of us? He's because what 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 fire did landscape level burning over long periods of time. It took those thin barked, right, species that are now causing mesification, right, our maples in the beach, and it moved them out of the system. Well, now they've all come back. And that's why you can't use fire to fix it. Because right. if you burn a five-inch five, five inch red maple, you just made it mad, right? So it's, it's going to sprout back. It's going to put all the leaf area down at the ground level, which is the last place you want it, right? Before you burnt in that stand, that leaf area for that maple was up there 30 or 40 foot off the ground. Now you took all that leaf area stuck in that next to the ground with the sprouts, right? So a simple burn won't, won't do it. Now, repeated burns, long, so landscape level management, like you can do on a national forest, right? So now you're thinking, let's 200 years, let's enter, let's do a burn every five years forever, right? You know, that might work in Oak's favor and probably will. Okay, especially you can get it the timing right and the interval right and all that kind of stuff. We've done some of that work here. But for most private landowners, you got 50 acres or 30 acres, you got a stand that's 70. You're not going to be burning like that. You're just, it's too blunt of a tool, right? But if you can get rid of the competitors, that's what you use herbicide for, and, the, and those big perennial root systems, you might be able to use fire, right, as a maintenance kind of tool, right? And that's the kind of stuff we got to get fixed. That's what we got to get figured out, right? It is interesting, though, that that is a really big change because, Greg, I know as a young forester, we would walk into stands. We might see a little bit of oak mixed into it, and we would go, 70 years old. We're managing this to 120. It's whatever it is. Don't worry about it. We don't need it. We're going to deal with that when we get to rotation. And this is kind of a little bit of a sea change, like, oh, wait, you need to be thinking about regeneration throughout the rotation, basically, or at least much more much longer period of time than simply 20 years at the end of that rotation. Yeah, and where we started, I started the first work in ugh, 2004 on mid-story removal, right? Now, you know, yeah. um, David Loftus uh, was working, uh, and I don't know whether many people have heard his name up in your neck of the woods, but he was, uh, he was uh, a project leader with the U.S. Forest Service, civil culturalist, uh, at, out of Asheville, North Carolina. So he's dealing with Northern Red Oak, right? And trying to keep Northern Red Oak running on high quality sites and um, where Yellow Poplar was a major competitor. And he started to delve into this mid-story removal where, you know, that 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 overtopped and intermediate crown class um, uh, shade tolerant species were what was causing the shade problem on the ground, right? So you remove those and all of a sudden your seedlings start to, your oak seedlings start to respond well. Okay. We started work on that in 04 here with White Oak, right? And it's, 
I mean, you got to get out in front of a regen harvest or removing the top, whether it's a clear cut or, a, you know, shelter wood or a irregular shelter, doesn't matter, right? So you're increasing that light and allowing that, that age class, that young age class to get moving. Um, you know, we're 15 years out. You know, we found out you got to get to get those oak, white oak seedlings who don't grow fast to get them up three, four five foot tall. Man, it takes a while. Right. And so I always thought that, OK, we could if we got out there far enough in front of a regeneration event to develop that advanced regeneration, we're good. And I still think that. But I also think that if you've got white oak in a stand, like I say, when it's younger, you don't want to let it get away from you and have to rebuild it. Right. And so, you know, forestry was not meant to be, and especially in our hardwood stands and mixed species stands, like we've got them in the Eastern US, um, you know, you, the, the silviculture has got to be pretty smart. And, and I think we don't allow ourselves to think out of the box enough right now. I think we're too programmed coming out of school, right? And our textbooks, um, we don't follow the same model that that they do in Germany back in the day, right? Where you have forest meisters and people coming up underneath them and mentoring and all that stuff. We just, you give me a textbook, four years, man, you're a forester, SAF accredited, go out there and do something, really? So how's, how's that working? So, um, and so I don't think we let ourselves be uh, be open enough and and thinking enough out of the box to say, okay, we've got a species here, in this case, white oak, right? And we're, we're, we know the characteristics, the growth characteristics, that thing, right? And, and foresters are smart enough, should be smart enough to assess the woods and analyze the woods and say, okay, this is the competitor situation we have here, right? And this is what's going to happen over time. And feel free enough to start enacting some silviculture plans I don't know how you pay for some of it within RCS. We can figure out there's got to be some way, you, can figure, you know, equip. There's got to be, you know, forest stand improvement. You could probably get almost everything we need done. But there might be some stuff that needs to be done in these individual stands that um, that's outside of the box a little bit, right, and is off the book. Yeah. And we can't be scared to do that. And I think we are, generally speaking. Well, I think it's been kind of an evolution over my career where I, guess, I think we're thinking a bit more about the silvics of the species. And as you said, Jeff, assessing these stands a little more carefully. And I know, at least at NASP, because we didn't do it up here, the importance of that mid-story removal and removal of that lower shade layer and stuff. So we're doing more of that now. Um, so hopefully foresters are thinking creatively and uh, about these different improvements as we go along here. Well, I think, I think we need to. And I, I've, one of the problems we got in that missile removal business, so unless you got a really robust hardwood pulp market, right, you're hurting. Um, I mean, I've, seen, I've seen stands where you can, um, you could commercially remove the mid-story, you know, where you could generate 25 tons per acre. You know, if you, if you have the right machinery, you have the good market and that kind of thing where you could do it commercially, you know, but man, that that's few and far between. Now we're relying upon government dollar to make it all work. And I think that's, that's hard to do, you know, for lots of different reasons. Yeah. And that's the case here too, where the Southern part of the state, we're looking at cost sharing to do that non-commercially. I guess 
we have the advantage in northern Wisconsin. If we're working in those situations, we got commercial markets. Yeah. And Greg, our, our friend, John Wendorski, Clark County, you guys are in the sweet spot because you have, they have decent oak and they still have the markets for removing yeah, markets. that mid-story so they can yep. work with that. But generally speaking, you know, and you guys know this, the, the white paper market is, you know, I mean, it's really deteriorated. And we've seen a bunch of, of mill closures in the in the northern uh, tier of that sourcing area. So like northern Alabama and that area, you know, we've we've lost mills in our area. So there's a lot there's a lot of places where I mean, you're not you're not putting a new pulp mill in. No, right. Right. And so all you can do is just kind of maintain yourself or go downhill. And with the loss of the pay, the white paper market, commodity paper market, you know, it's hurt our ability to do silviculture for some things, yeah. for sure. Jeff, with all of this in mind, uh, this is where we kind of started the conversation was about this big collaborative effort called the White Oak Initiative. Can you um, tell us a little bit, uh, what is the White Oak Initiative? So the White Oak Initiative, it's uh, it all it is right now is a collaboration. It's a, it's a bunch of stakeholders coming together, recognizing we've got an issue that we're a, a lot of different entities you know, that are interested in conservation of white oak. Uh, ultimately, the industry is worried about sustainability and availability, right, at a price point, okay? Um, you know, uh, conservation groups are, are worried about it from the different attributes that, that white oak provides and the wildlife, wildlifers and that kind of thing. So all the white oak initiative is, is a bunch of stakeholders that have come together to say, hey, we, we, can, to, we can work together on this issue of white oak sustainability and start doing things that, that can help out. It's very unique in that regards. It's we may wind it, it's probably going to turn into a 501c3, but right now it's just a bunch of people getting together, right? And talking about white oak conservation. Um, and um what happened was for those for those foresters that are listening that are in extension, all it was was my attempt to um get information, right? Get information in front of the stakeholders on where White Oak was at, you know, the issues that it was pinching. We got plenty now, but we got stuff coming that's going to be problematic, right? And and I, I simply did a, a bunch of messaging on that, workshops and those kind of things, got everybody in a room, you know, and at one point, you know, back in 2017 in the spring, I said, at one of these big meetings we had, um, you know, we had distillers there, Right. Think about it from forestry. We're, all, we're never we never have anybody on our side. Right. So we're all, we're all, we finally got the distillers. Right. Who's who make a product that kind of people are into right now. Uh, interested in forest management like that never happens. Right. So, um, so we had that. And and I had Tom Martin, who was president of American Forest Foundation, AFF. Right. So that's tree farm guy um, came to one of those meetings just talking about who owns the white oak. Right. Um, you know, just giving information uh, to some of the industry that didn't realize that you and I own all the all the white oak, right? And so, um, uh, and 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 he saw the interest we had and the different stakeholders that were there, and a lot of people were in it because of that 2017 meeting. I said we've had a couple of these meetings every year. Um, let's get together, and start doing something. Let's form a partnership, or you know, let's let's get everybody's email address and you know start sharing stuff, and let's let's try to do something. And, the bottom line is Tom and I did some airport meetings after that, and we came up with the idea of doing the White Oak Initiative because Tom was really impressed with, you know, the, the fact that we had a commercial interest. Mm -hmm. You know, we have the Longleaf Initiative, right? There's not a commercial interest there. That's all conservation. 
We have the short leaf finish the same way. Red cockaded woodpeckers love it. Other than that, industry doesn't care that much because this, my Southern pine brethren are all loblolly, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. About it. Yeah. But here in White Oak, man, you had everybody interested, right? And so we we got one of, one of the distillers, Brown Foreman. So Brown Foreman is Jack, for those who don't know, it's Jack Daniels whiskey. Okay. okay? And Old Forest. Okay. Bourbon. And so um, they had started sponsoring. We had been talking because that's in my backyard here. And they had become interested and started hearing about this. They actually owned, they were the only distiller that was vertically integrated. It means they made their own barrels. They bought a cooperage. They bought a couple of stave mills, right? So they, other than that, the distillers were just buying barrels, right? So they they understood this wood thing and, you know, wood supply and sustainability and everything. So uh, the three of us, AFF, uh, myself at the University of Kentucky and, and Brown Foreman uh, got together 23, um, you know, geographically spread and, and stakeholder spread individuals to come together um, in the fall of 2017 and formed the White Oak Initiative. And it's been rolling ever since. Um, you know, they, the industry, you know, has put money in it and they're up there lobbying for more forestry stuff in the farm bill, right? So that's a good thing, you know? Whoever does that, nobody ever does that, right? So we finally got people that are lobbying for that. Uh, been supporting a lot of, uh, we've got a lot of uh, uh, LSR, landscape scale restoration. State guys would know what that is, right? So that's money from state and private going into, uh, you know, uh, going into um, uh, projects. And we've got, we got uh, LSR projects for White Oak, both in Region 9 and Region 8. And they're both basically the same thing, you know, doing this, not the same thing. We're not duplicating effort, but we're combining effort, right, to, to work on educational products for, you know, we've got Landowners for Oaks, you know, series out, you know, we're, we're doing training stuff for foresters, you know, uh, logger education stuff, all that kind of stuff to make sure that everybody knows what they're doing when it comes to managing white oak, right, from a technical standpoint and providing information that the foresters can use to tell landowners, oh, this is... You know, it's important for oak to have advanced regeneration. And why is that and how that works, right? Those kind of things. And here's the different practices that can be done to manage oak. So we're producing all those kind of things right now. So it's just a collaborative of a bunch of stakeholders, you know, geographically spread and interest spread uh, to try to help this species out. And of course, and you guys know this, all four, you know, if you're helping white oak, you're also helping whatever else oak you got right. there, right? Today's episode of Silvacast is also brought to you by... Looking for heavy-duty construction and forestry equipment? Check out McCoy Construction and Forestry, your John Deere dealer. With 16 dealerships spanning the Midwest, McCoy offers new or used construction and forestry equipment, rental, parts and service, and product support. Visit McCoyCF.com and follow them on social media to see what McCoy has to offer. The Family Forest Carbon Program pays landowners to improve the health of their land and increase the long-term value of their property. The program equips landowners with resources and support to implement sustainable practices that help them reach their goals while also improving the health of their forests and our planet. To learn more about how you can access these benefits for your forests, visit familyforestcarbon.org. And now back to our show. You, Jeff, you're working with landowners, you're working with professionals. Um, is there also uh, research being supported by this collaborative? Yeah, so the, the collaborative itself doesn't dole any money, at least not right now, um, except for lobbying efforts in, um, in D.C., mm -hmm. okay? Um, 
But what it does do is support, it'll sign off on it, give letters of support to researchers, right? That are putting, submitting grants and that kind of thing. Um, and so, uh, and it's it's done, it's, we've hosted, the White Oak Initiative hosted a couple of meetings of scientists to get together and just, what are we doing on White Oak, right? right? And that right. kind of thing. So it's it's done, it's, it's helped foster collaboration. Yeah, and I know I know we've been involved in uh, the white oak progeny tests uh, with Laura DeWalt, so that's kind of a a wider a wider offshoot. That's a good example. See, because all that white oak work wouldn't been going on without this, right? That energy, right? Now that white oak, uh, yeah. So the the white oak genetic and tree improvement project is a big one. I mean, it's the biggest. I mean, we can't think of anyone bigger. Now, the Southern Pine guys got some, you know, some some big, you know, genetic tree improvement projects. Yeah. Same thing, spruce fir territory, right? You do. But as far as hardwoods goes, this is a big one. I mean, we have over 400 sources of white oak throughout the range planted in a master uh, uh, progeny test here in Kentucky. And we got 21, which is what you're referring to, like regional progeny tests, right, where that same progeny has been being located yep. in different states around, ultimately to be culled and used as seed orchards. So you've got at least locally adapted acorns, right, that you can use at the nurseries then to produce locally adapted white oak seedlings, right? We're not going to plant our way yep. out of this sustainability issue with white oak. You're talking tens of millions of acres of white, right? You're just not you're not going to plant your way out of it, right? Yeah. But um, you can do things like enhancement planting, right? Um, you, you know, you can do establishment of plantation, those kind of things, but like a particularly enhancement planting, if you had good, good genotype, right, to match sites and stuff, you could think about doing that. And God forbid we get the emerald ash borer going, uh, the white oak uh, borer going, and, you know, we have a problem. Don't, yeah, I know. Don't I, say I, it. I know. Don't say it. Everybody yeah, asks yeah. me all the time, so no, we're okay yeah. now, gypsy mother, we'll be all right. But <laughs> I mean, you can always have that. And, yeah. and you guys know this. You know, if you wait till you have a problem like that to start looking at your genetics, you, you're done. I mean, you just can't handle it. And right. we had private industry is supporting this, this genetic tree improvements. And they also supported uh, running the genome. So we have the genome for white oak now. We did that last year, started that last year. And they gave us enough money in it where you could not only run the sequences, but you can start lining things up who's on what chromosome, see? So... We've got this great genomics work going on, right? Combine that with the, the genetics and tree improvement stuff. And now we're building a platform, right, of knowledge that, that we can put to use, right, for different things, okay? And so I think that's a good thing, you know? And, and I think that's all flowing out of, so you started the White Oak Initiative, you brought this pool of stakeholders together. And then I really enjoyed reading through the assessment and conservation plan that you guys developed because it basically took what are the concerns, but then maybe tried to paint that way forward with that conservation plan, which seems like it's a really important step. Clearly, you need a lot. You need to get a lot, right? And <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> well, that's a given. That's, that's a given. Yeah, so, no, but yeah. yeah. So, but one of the things we did in the White Oak Initiative helped do, and this, this was part of the LSR grants, is we needed to do an assessment of the white oak condition across the range, right? Where, where we know where we got the forest, that's FI, so that's simple, right? And so we know where we've got the forest and the, where the, the importance values and where the base area is at and the growing stock, right? And now what areas are regenerating well? Where, where do we have, 
you know, advanced regeneration where don't we have, right? So that starts to show up, okay, this is areas where we're likely to have problems with regeneration, right? And so you started mapping all those different um, elements, right? Which is what you were talking about, Brad, and, and it starts to give you a roadmap of, hey, here's where we need to be concentrating our effort. Now, I'll give you a great example. Like in, in the central part of the range, I mean, I, I would not suggest anybody to try to grow white oak on site index 80. You just can't, it's too good of a site. There's too many competitors. You're just not going to be able to do it. I mean, you look, if you could, you, I mean, that'd be great. And you got white oak there now, but, but trying to grow it there is going to be really, really hard. So let's, let's find the areas where we've got that, you know, site, see site index 55, like the Ozarks, there's areas there you may not have to worry about it because it's taking care of itself. So let's find out where we can reasonably grow it. Silviculturally, we got a shot at making it work, right? Let's define those areas. Let's make sure we got equip money there. We'll make sure we got foresters there that know what they're doing. Right? Make sure that loggers are aware if it's a thing, right? So loggers are there to extract timber, not to do timber management, right? And it's up to landowners and all that to do the right thing. But but you know, at least make loggers aware of how oak forests work because they don't. You know, a lot of them. They, 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 there's a size age thing that they have trouble with, and I understand why, right? Um, you know, and 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 then you know, let's start giving build the materials to let the landowners know this is what it takes to to manage oaks. One of the one of the things in that plan uh, was kind of some particular practices on where to concentrate to develop um, and sustain white oak, and I know Brad. And probably all three of us are about the right generation. Big fan of uh, David Letterman's top ten. So um, I think Brad, you you kind of wanted to do that, oh, you know. So here we go. Yeah. So uh, yeah, and this is basically these were the uh, the prioritization or opportunities for practice that were included in here. So we'll just pick your brain, Jeff, on these as we go through through here. So so here we go. Uh, tonight's category is white oak. Uh, practices to sustain it uh, from the, oh wait, I forgot, from the uh, home office in Lexington, Kentucky. So uh, number, and I don't know if these are in order, so you can tell us if they're in order or not, but uh, number 10, this was under moderate or selective opportunity level practices, uh, prescribed fire. Prescribed fire, the, the issue, the, the problem with prescribed fire, as we talked about before, it's a blunt instrument, right? And, you know, I, I'm I'm able to take an herbicide prescription and if things work reasonably right, I can tell you within 90% of what's going to happen there. Right. I mean, you're, you know, but fire is a blunt instrument and the way we talk about fire and particularly as it relates to white oak, it's more involved with a site prep, right. Than it is that long-term repetitive burning. Cause we haven't worked that out yet. Right. And, and so, but this would be a situation where you could use it, you know, you got to shelter wood and burn, situation right you know or a site prep uh, using prescribed fire and that's the way we talk about it there because until we work out the prescribed fire long term as a single tool okay it's interval right because they're they're you know if if you burn every year you'll kill every seedling you got over time right so you have to let the oak build up right and then burn so we we've got some work to do to figure out prescribed fire as a neat tool and everybody wants to burn. Um, it's, it's the, it's the thing of the wildlife people love it. They'll be lighting everything up for it's over with, you know, in, in our neck of the woods, if you'd let them, but, um, 
but it is a blunt instrument and we don't know how to, we don't know that prescription and how to use it quite right. So I put it as far as all the practices we have, right. It it's ranked pretty low as far as, you know, what we're going to be able to, how, how, how we're going to, yeah. the acres that we're actually going to be able to use it yeah. on. Right. And, and, and you yeah. did say with this, with the moderate or selective opportunity level practices that these were can effectively establish seedlings, but are costly and our best use in combination with the other practices. So that's that's a good point. So uh, right. number nine, scarification. So scarification is uh, is one of the practices that is probably of all the practices we've got, when you say scarification, yeah. most foresters go like, what are you talking about, right? So that's the one that they haven't heard about. And and it has been used, um, uh, There's there's probably only been three or four studies that I know of that have really gone after it and 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 tried it out but every time we try it it works okay now the problem is it's a again it's a little bit costly so scarification is simply on flat ground you could envision a small farm tractor and a small disc being run through the woods right after acorn fall right and you drive it through the woods like a squirrel squirrel and run through there right so you're dodging trees just run all right but the idea is that you're incorporating those acorns down in the mineral soil, giving them that direct mineral soil contact. Um, and you, when you do that, you will increase seedling numbers. Okay. You're going to crash some, you're going to crack some, you know, all that. But as when that acorn is sitting in that duff layer um, and the red oaks, right? So they're going to, they're going to, you know, the, the, the white oaks will put that, that radical out right away in the fall. Okay. And if it's sitting up there in that duff layer, it's it's that acorn is is subject to desiccation, okay, and it's subject to predation, not just from turkey and you know deer, okay, but from insects that do with beetles and everything else. If you get that thing down in the dirt, so a squirrel buries a nut, right? That's what we're doing here, and so the disc buries a nut, gets it down in the mineral soil, and all of a sudden it's protected from desiccation. It's protected from some of those insects, not all of them, but some of them. And because of all that, you'll get more seedlings per acre. And I've done, uh, we did this research in Eastern Kentucky where it's straight up and down. I mean, like, you know, we got, we got, if, if you got a 20% slope, it's nothing, right? So we got 35, 45, 55% slope. And we took a, a, uh, a rake on a dozer on my, I get, you know, we, we put it on our, uh, our, our dozer, it's like a D6 size dozer, right? Uh, and, and you know, put a brush rake on it and did the same thing with a brush rake. And we had the same result, right? So that's scarification, right? And it only works when you have a bumper crop. So you got to get a lot of acorns on the ground, right? And do it then, okay? So again, it's one of those practices that will work for you if you've got the right conditions, right? It's gentle enough terrain, right? You get that bumper crop, Right. And then being able to do that will help yep. you out with seeding yeah, numbers. OK, we have a number of public uh, land managers using scarification with dozer, dozer blades, rakes or s salmon blades. And uh, um, maybe we should get do a little more formal research, get that out there more widely. It's been done. In, it's been done in Pennsylvania, Southern Illinois. We've done it in Kentucky and, and they've done it down in Auburn as well. So on bottomland hardwood. Bruce Blair at the uh, Yellow River State Forest in Iowa had done some really successfully too. And again, it's a practice like burning everything. Wildlife guys love it. If they can run stuff through the woods and they can tear stuff up and whatever, they they love it. So you can sell them pretty easy. 
So number eight, uh, underplanting or enrichment or enhancement planting. Yeah, so that's pretty traditional, right? And we've always talked about that and done it a little bit. Um, and and you can you can underplant. Um, so you can you can underplant like to increase the like you would trying to build advanced regeneration, right? So you can underplant and do that. Okay. Now there's issue with deer browse. I mean, you got to worry about all those kind of things, right? Um, and you can enhancement plant um, as well. Now, when you enhancement plant, you're going to have to have good quality seedlings, and you're going to have to be able to control competition around them, right? So the idea with there, instead of trying to put a hundred seedlings out there per acre, you're trying to put ten out there and make it work, right? And that's usually associated with a uh, with a regeneration treatment. So that we've had success doing that, but it's again, it's one of those costly practices, yep. man. And at times, it's going to fail. I mean, that's a rough and but you know, you're planting seedlings out there in, in you know, in a forest. That's a rough environment, mm -hmm. right? And so it can be done, um, but you have to have really good quality seedlings. You have to know what you're yep. doing, and you got to be able to do that competition control. Yeah, that's my experience. You got to follow up with those, otherwise they get buried in the native yep. vegetation that's so, out there. But now we get into high opportunity level practices. So the next one would be site preparation for regeneration. So how would this differ from some of the site, site prep we've talked about? Well, it really doesn't. I mean, so site prep is just one of those things of, of where you've got to get in there and you've got competition, you got to control, right? And normally, you know, you don't want to let it go so long that you, you're doing a liberation cut, right? Um, we do cleanings a little bit, but a lot of it just has to do with controlling. And that's where you do the site assessment up front. Right. And you, hey, we know we're going to have a problem with with red bud or we know we're going to have a problem with, you know, dogwood or we're going to have a problem with, you know, red maple or whatever. And you treat that with herbicide, you know, so, so that's a very classic type of, you know, and in there we're talking mostly okay. herbicide site prep. OK, uh, number five, I think this one will be new for a lot of people uh, Two age deferment cuts. Yeah. So two age deferment cut. And that's one of those that you won't find in the textbook. Um, so what. Yep. What it is, uh, simply, and I'll tell you how it works for, for white oak and how we found out it would work for white oak. So uh, Deferma was first, <laughs> so the first article uh, that came out in the Journal of Forestry, and this had to be in the 80s, because it came out of it, it came out of the Forest Service guys in West Virginia. And I can't remember if Neil Lampson was the, and I can't remember who it was right now that was the, the lead author on, but uh, it was it was viewed as an alternative, a visual or aesthetic alternative to clear cutting, because functionally what you're doing is run a clear cut, run put a seed tree in in hardwoods. That's what it looks like. Okay, so cut everything and leave your you know your 15 square foot of residual overstory, good looking co-dominant trees. Okay, so it looks very much like a seed tree. All right. That's that's a two age deferment. Why is it called two age? Because you're retaining the unlike an irregular shelter wood that you may remove that overstory over time. You're keeping that those what's are called reserve trees. You're keeping them uh, into the second to the to complete a second rotation. So you have two age classes in that stand, these scattered uh, old reserve trees. Right. With a with an understory, if you will, of the new regenerating age class. And like a shelter wood, you leave what, 50% of the overstory intact roughly, right, to pr provide some shade. This time, it's functioning just like a clear cut. So there, there's so little residual 
basal area in, in those overstory trees that the thing responds like a clear cut. And that's what gives you the two ages. And it was, and it was originally thought of as an alternative, as a visual or aesthetic alternative clear cutting because the public likes that better. Okay. So we started helping our national forest down here implement some of that and do it correctly. Uh, they, and I'm going to tell this on them, but hopefully they'll <laughs> never hear that. Well, everybody was involved in this has gone down, but they started doing this deferment cutting and they were basically doing a commercial clear cut and leaving 20 or 30 square foot of crap standing, right? And they call that a two-age deferment. And us silviculture looked at it and go, well, that's terrible. <laughs> so that's just, if you're going to leave trees standing, let's make them good ones. And we started doing a lot of work in, in how you left, left trees that were going to stand that weren't going to wind throw, that weren't going to have a corn branch, all that kind of stuff, right? So, um, but here's what we found out. And here's where it works for white oak. You can use it as a last resort. Think of it. If you've got a stand that's got overstory's got white oak in it or any, just pick an oak, right? So it's it's got oak in the overstory. It has no advanced regeneration or very little, no stump sprouting potential, right? So if you're going to cut that hard, you're going to lose your oak. The oak reproductive potential is just zero, right? If you leave those reserve trees in oak, what you can do is lifeboat that species in the stand. So those reserve trees are not being left to, to allow for acorns that, that are going to somehow magically, you know, be that next age class, right? So, so you have these reserve trees that are oak. You have an age class coming under, underneath them that could be whatever. I mean, yellow poplar, be, beech maple or something. But by leaving those reserve trees there, you get acorn sexual reproduction the whole time. So you've got acorns being generated, right? that the forester down the road is going to have a bigger window to start to work with to build advanced regeneration, a rotation age from now. So it's a lifeboat mechanism, okay? When you're going to cut, you're going to make a lot of money off this. The landowner is going to cut no matter what, whether you got any oak regeneration or not. Um, and when we first started working with a system, we did not real. I didn't realize that until I started walking in these stands, you know, 15 years down after we'd done this, and there's like oak seedlings on the ground. And we're going like, wait a minute, where did that come from? Well, it came from the reserve trees we left standing. And, and we started doing some work on that and found out sure enough, we could we could use that to, to do that, if that makes sense to, right? That's a two-age deferment harvest. Number four, uh, group openings or gap cuts? So with, with small landowners and you know, where you've got 30 acres or 50 acres or 150 acres, right? And you need to get some age classes developed in there just from a sustainability standpoint. You know, most landowners that we've got, especially the ones that are really, you know, that that own small the small parcels, clear cutting is not an option, right? And, but group openings are. And so we're talking about stuff that, you know, acre inside, whatever, where you punch an opening in there, you know, you clean it up pretty good, you know, make a functionally small clear cut, right? And what when you've got those smaller holes, and we've researched, the Forest Service put research in starting in the 60, in 1960, on looking in, in the central, in the central hardwood region, at looking at different size of openings from one tree to like three acres, right? And so from that data, and some of those studies, like we've got one of those studies uh, going on at Robinson Forest, it was put in the 60s, where we have different hole sizes. And you start to look at the, the vegetative response, right? 
in with those holes a different size. And what you what and this is common. We we know this, right? So on the edge, it's going to be more shaded, right? And and oaks are it, it's going to be a little bit more oaky around the edge because of that, right? You've got the center if it gets full sunlight all the time, right? So that's going to be your shade, uh, your shade intolerance are going to flourish there, and your intermediate shade tolerance around the edge. So um, you can use these group openings to one to get you a you know a good species diversity in there. It's a it's an it's a practice. It's a regenerational practice to establish different age classes that some of our small landowners can swallow. Okay, right. From the standpoint of logging costs, it's not a big deal. You know, if you're taking out three thousand board foot per acre, whether you're taking out across the stand evenly or in small groups across the stand, doesn't matter from a you know from a harvest standpoint. You know, financial standpoint. And what we found out in looking at the data from from the studies. Like a 58, 50 foot diameter hole in our neck of the woods, you might as well not have done it, right? So you may have got a little shade intolerance started uh, when you did that, but as that hole grows closed and you know it becomes more shaded, you know you might as well have not done anything. Our 150 foot diameter holes, though, we had more oak component in those holes because we had some, you know, the 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 shade area to the total volume was such that there was more oaky area percentage-wise in a hole like that. And then when you got to, you know, you got your larger holes, you know, an acre in size, acre and a half, you'd still get the oak around the edge, but there's a whole lot of, you know, total sunlight area, right? So the bottom line is you can use group opening as an acceptable tool to most landowners that particularly have smaller acreages. And if you, and if you make that hole 150 foot at a minimum, right, you're going to have an environment there that that is a, a part of that environment. That hole, anyway, is going to be amenable to oak. Okay, so that's where the use of the group, and it's not group selection, because group selection is done, but group holes uh, systematically put in, so you got three age classes, right? And if you do that, you got you got <laughs> you got group selection going on. We're just talking about punching holes in, right? Okay, and using that as a as a regenerational tool. You you have though, and I I've, I think I've heard you talk about it, or I've seen things out of. Kentucky, where you guys have explored using expanding gaps, so putting in gaps and then making those larger over time to see if it would be applicable to oak. Yeah, and that reason we did, we started that, we published the first paper on that in Canadian Journal of Forest Research, but a couple of years ago, there's some other studies going on now. We've, we've had some other studies like that that have started, and we've done some, and they've got some over at the Forest Service and out of the the uh, the Hardwood uh, Silviculture Upland Hardwood Project at, at Bent Creek. Uh, they've got some going on as well, and that expanded. And the idea is that when you create that opening, you also modify the light environment in the intact woods right around the opening, right? And so, and we've shown that you know, you for for a certain distance going back, you know, about 100 foot going back, you've modified that, and you can see the response in the in the you know the the advanced region to that. Okay, uh, and we played around different things to try to project that. So. You can do that, and then when you when you get that response, then you can expand that gap over time. That's the idea. Now, the real issue is going to be, and any forester out there that's thinking about that for over three or four seconds, so you have an operational issue, right? So now we're we're, we're like trying to manage this ring around this opening, and can you do that? And if it involves a harvest, can you get enough volume out there to do it, right? So. I think there's some interest in looking at that and continuing to do it. The I'm a little bit worried about the applicability okay. of it. 
Well, we're down to the last three, and these are the highest opportunity level practices. So number three is uh, shelter woods, shelter wood establishment cuts. And that's pretty traditional, right? So now you got to know when to use it uh, and what practices you have to use along with it to control the competition. Okay. But but that's just simple shelter wood. You know, we don't spend a lot of time on the shelter wood and burn, although that can work, right? But you have to do, you know, you have to apply site prep as part of that shelter wood system, you know, and, and oak can certainly work with that. So now it's figuring out in, in your, you know, the stand conditions and site conditions, right, that you've got um, that'll make that shelter wood work. Because you can run a shelter wood and it can backfire on you, you know, I mean, it's, it's, yeah. so you got, you, you have to really assess it. Right. But, but in practice, in our, in our practices, we've got, we don't do anything really special with, Oh, here's what, here's how you do this with what for white oak, right? Like the group opening size or something, you know, um, we really don't talk about that. Um, but shelter wood does work, can work to get that modified light environment. I think, I think your point, Jeff, of, um, kind of the details behind the shelter wood, that's probably important for a lot of these points we're going through. There's a lot of details and specifics to each of these. So people are going to need to, you know, be aware of that. Yeah. It, and and actually just to be, uh, and, and it's probably important here as well. You, it, you do have in the, in the assessment report and the conservation plan that under shelter wood establishment practices, uh, practices to enhance oak regeneration prior to implementing a shelter wood establishment cut are likely needed. And so it, I guess that's just part of that assessment. And so it's kind of consistent with what we were talking about. Earlier. Yeah, I mean, if you don't have the advanced regeneration pool or the sprout potential, so your oak regeneration potential is low, the shelter wood is not going to help you out that yep. much, right? So what the shelter wood is doing, right, is when your oak regeneration potential is high, you're you're trying to help yourself a little bit with those competitors, right? That's what yep. you're trying to do. Yep. So number two is crop tree release. So, and there, there's nothing special about this. Right. I mean, crop tree release has been around forever. Um, you can use it, whether it's a sapling pole or make it commercial and all that. And it works for white oak, just like it works for everybody else. There's nuances of difference between it and northern red oak, for example. Um, you know, it's it's we found out you don't need to release them on all four sides like you would a yellow poplar. So yellow poplar is it's uh, very um, so it's it's resource utilization, resource capture, right? It's going to use every bit of sunlight it gets. So you release it on four sides of the of the crown and it's going to respond to it, right? And But what happens is with oak, you have a marginal difference between removing three or four sides, right? It, it's only going to respond so much. So there's a little bit of that kind of thing. And in our, in, our, in our materials that we've got for foresters, we have some of that. That's the detail that we talk about that's there, right? And and unfortunately, white oak likes the corn branch, right? So several species do. Unfortunately, white oak's one of them. So we have in there marking guidelines. If you're seeing this kind of defect indicator on the side, you know, on the tree, you know you're going to get a lot of uh, a lot of epicorn branching out of out of it. If you see this kind here, you're not, you know, and and so things like that to help uh, to help with the older stands when you're doing like a commercial, uh, you know. Uh, crop tree release. Um, so you've got a small soft timber stand and you're going to let some stay and 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 do that selective cut, you know, logger called selective cut or improvement cut or whatever they want to call it, you know. So we have some of that kind of detailed information with white oak. I'm really glad to see that one in there because over my career, at least, we haven't spent enough time 
um, tending the oaks that we have coming along and we lose them in places. Oh yeah. And, and white oaks, one of those, because I mean, so we talk about when do you, you know, where, where it can be real. So when inter, any intermediate practice works, it's, it's when you can change the value. Like, so if you can increase, you know, the percentage of higher value species in a stand, you want to do it. Right. Mm -hmm. All you're doing is producing right. X right. amount of volume on the same species like you would in a, a row thinning and for pines or something, which is fine to do and you need to do it, right? But where it can really make sense is if you can shift the species composition at an early age. Right. So now we're going in sapling size stands, right. like in a group selection opening, right? You know, or a group opening, whatever. So now you got a, a 15 year old and, and white oak can, can oftentimes can use some help because it can get over top pretty quick, right? So if you right. get in there, you can you can adjust that species comp and improve the amount of white oak in there if you jump on it, you know, in that sapling, particularly in that sapling size state, you know, yep. and yep. help and help yep. your white oak on a higher quality site. See, that's what you're doing. You know, that that's where it really comes. It's useful when you've got a higher quality site and and you know your white oak's just not going to be able to maintain a dominant canopy position. But the but the crop tree release can help you do that. And here we come to it. The number one suggested upland and white oak management practice is mid-store mid removal. And so, I mean, that's just like we've talked about before. So that's trying to help us with the mesification issue, right? So we've got such a buildup of leaf area close to the ground due to the invasion, if you will, or the proliferation of your shade tolerant species in there. And that's what's stopping the recruiting. We uh, probably a number of your foresters are familiar with what's called the oak bottleneck, where you'll get stands where you get you get a bumper crop of acorns. You'll get a bunch of half foot tall, foot tall seedlings, you know, and they'll sit there in that in this dense shade. And over four, five, six, eight, ten years, they'll all die off. And then you have another bumper crop, and here you go again, right? And it does that like forever. And that's called the oak bottleneck because you can't get those seedlings up in size. You know, you can't get them two foot, four foot, six foot in size. And the mid-story removal takes that competition and shade out of there, right? So it allows a natural regeneration process uh, to occur, just as it would have back in the 1800s when, when we had removed all the mid-story and killed the mesification, right? And and that's why we feel like it's a pretty legitimate practice to become familiar with and, and start to use. And that works for any upland oak. Well, it works for any bottomland oak. It works for any oak that's that's intermediate shade taller, right? So is it, Jeff, is it important to, uh, you talked about the oak bottleneck, is it important to kind of monitor, say, those seed crops and those germinants? And, and when you got that population of germinants, you know, that would be the time to give them more sunlight and do that mid-story removal? Yeah, the last thing you want to do is do the mid-story removal with no oak advanced regeneration present, right? Because other stuff's going to, I mean, here's the problem with that practice is if you've got, and I'll just use my territory as an example of, and talk about red maple, yeah, but, you know, replace your you know, shade tolerant competitor uh, with that. So red maple, you when you go to clear that out, you've got one foot tall red maple in there too. And when you give it more right. light, guess what? It's going to like it. Okay. And so you have, you do have to assess it. You got to be smart when you're going to use it. 
uh, you have to get some seedlings established before you do, okay? Because if you don't, you're just, you're wasting money. And we had some problems with that because you know how it is, you get, then the foresters can relate to this, right? So they get landowners that hear about, go to a meeting, you know, and hear somebody talk about something and they want to do it, right? They want to do it, whether it's right, wrong, doesn't matter. We're going to do a midsummer removal. No, you can't because there's no, there's no baby oak seedlings there, right? So we had a little bit of that problem going on for a while where people were hip on using it yeah. in situations where the stand wasn't ready. Yeah. So you're, you're correct. Assess your regeneration, assess your acorn crop that's coming, right? And, and, and time it to where you're, you're improving the light regime for the, for the oaks. We kind of circle back to this is all a process and, and uh, you got to be kind of working with it over time. It. Yeah, you sure do. And yeah, it's a, it's a suite of, you know, so this oak, re the whole oak management thing is right. A series of silviculture practices that you got to put together to make it yep. work. Unfortunately, yep. you know? Yeah. In our world, Greg, I could see combining, so number 10 was fire, but number one, I could combine the mid-story and the fire, and that might actually buy you a little more time. But like you were saying, Jeff, certain people aren't going to be able to do the fire, or at least not as easily. Yeah. yeah. And in the Ozarks, you can use it. It's a little bit different there, but they use it to reset the stand, right? So they'll go in there and, and do the fire to to re basically reset the, 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 the thing down to, down to the ground, right? And, and if you're on a little bit lower site quality to start with and you don't have as many competitors, see, that alone can allow the oak to flourish, right? So they figured out how to use that based on the stand situation they've got. And that's in you're in the Lake State stuff, you're going to have to, I mean, you got to figure this stuff out, you know, and how to combine these practices in a way that, you know, they make sense for what you're trying to do. So, Jeff, I mean, looking forward uh, with the White Oak Initiative, you know, what do you see coming down the pike? What's next um, with all of that? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. I think there is still a lot of interest in it. It's pretty new. There's a lot of interest in it. I think um, I think we're going to see uh, a, maintenance of, a maintenance of contributions coming into it and, you know, and and interest from, from our stakeholders in it. Um, I think um, right now the big thing is, so we're developing all these training tools. Like we got an app that's coming you know, for landowners to be able to do a little bit, don't panic foresters, do a little bit of self-assessment, <laughs> take some pictures of your forest, you know, and and it'll educate landowners a little bit about what it takes to grow white oak, right? And you link that to a website, it's got publication, but ultimately the in the end, what it will tell them is that, hey, you need to be thinking in this direction and you got to have a professional forester to help you be able to do this, this, and this, right? and go get your professional forester and we'll have a mechanism in there for them to to um to get a hold of their state forester okay um and for assistance and that we've got another portal in that app for professionals that helps them with some of this prescription stuff so so the bottom line is we're finishing up our our logger education materials so all this education stuff we're we're doing now but the real issue is how much? How many acres are we going to be able to impact? Right. right. So now we're concerned about how do we track progress? And you, you know, guys, ultimately we do that from the standpoint of, um, you know, we FIA data. But it's going to take, I mean, what, like 15, 20 years for this kind of stuff to show up in FIA right. data, you know? So now we're worried about how do we track progress? How do we know we're making progress? 
in quote unquote change of behavior, right? In getting more of these practices done. There are ways to track, but we're trying to figure that out now. How are easy ways to track it? You know, you can do it looking at equip money and the practices that the equip money go for, right? But see, even then, it's hard to tell what's white oak and what's not, right? Okay. Um, so right now we're trying to figure out a way to be able to, like I said, to track management change and the, the, the change in management practices, right? So that we can show that, hey, all of this effort, right, is amounting to something. So that's the challenge now as to how to, you know, we can figure out the educational tools, we can do all that kind of stuff, but getting the practice change on the ground is a big one. And that's why we want to know there's got enough equip money there. So here's the, the question like the distillers ask is, do you guys have enough money to do forest practice, right? And do you have enough, what are the markets? So that's why I keep telling them, you got to have markets. Now, nobody's going to put in a new pulp mill, but do you have scrag mills? And stuff? Do you have markets for your low quality stuff, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, you know, and, and do your foresters know what they're doing? Yeah. <laughs> so, so, you know, we're working on all that, you know, and to try to push this thing forward. So what are the roadblocks, yeah. right? And the, and the, and the white open issue is trying to define those, you know, and then build solutions. Well, one thing that Brandon and I talk about often is just how to scale things up. You know, we, we look at uh, trying to solve certain problems and I just want to thank you, Jeff, yep. Kerr, for, you know, shining a spotlight on this issue and finding a way to scale it up. Like, yeah, you're going to, we're going to have to monitor long-term, but there's a lot of collaborate collaborators as we talked about working on this and and so um it's a great project yep well and and the bad part about it is all of us any field forester out there hates paperwork and reporting right so so it's an uphill battle anyway and I, and I get it trust me i do so if uh foresters want to get more information on this where should they go so um you know, White Oak, uh, the, the White Oak Initiative.org is a good place under resources. We've got the white, the nice thing about that is, so we've got 13 uh, landowner for Oaks pubs there right now. So there's three of them there that like, you know, how do you grow White Oak, right? Well, you know, what, why is what, why, why are Upland Oaks? So the, the, all those publications are Upland Oaks with a White Oak focus, right? So we're not ignoring Chestnut Oak. We're not ignoring Northern Red, right? Um, but um, there's three publications in there that I think would be good uh, if you had landowners that were interested, right, and learning a little bit more about oak or you were trying to get them to move in that direction, um, those publications would go. We've got three of them that talk about, you know, why is white oak important? How does white oak work biologically? You know, how do we grow it and those kind of things? And, and then an, an introduction to all those 10 practices, okay? The other publications are how to identify oak. And we put you know, we've got white oak in there and then eight other, you know, co-occurring upland oaks in there so they know how to identify stuff. Thank you very much. There's a ton of information here and it was great like going through this with you and really great to see you again, Jeff. I know folks will get a lot out of this conversation. Well, it's like you you probably say this or you should say it every time, especially when you're dealing with technical stuff. And I tell everybody, you know, I may have to change these percentages over time, although I'm getting pretty old in the tooth now. 87% of everything I told you was right. 13 is wrong. You figured it out. Right? <laughs> I'll have to remember that one. Well, thanks again, Jeff, and and uh, take care, and I'm sure we'll okay. be running into you. 
Well, I appreciate I appreciate the time and enjoyed having the conversation. And and you know, it's a, forestry is one of those things. And you've probably heard this before. You know, it's not rocket science. It's, it's a lot more complicated. And and I do think dealing with the mixed species stands that we have, right? And and the number of species that we have in our stands. This silviculture is not an easy thing. It's really not. And we shouldn't shy away from it. Uh, but we all got to be on our A game. Well said. Thank you. That music can only mean it's time for the Dropbox. The Dropbox is a regular segment where we take your comments, questions, tips, whatever you share with us, and share them with our listeners. Brad, Jason and Bayfield sent in a really good topic idea, aesthetic modification to silvicultural practices. I know that most foresters bump into this issue probably often, and it can play a really critical role in how the public sees forest management. But I'm not sure where to go with this one. I'd like to know what is the state of the art or the science behind this issue. I think this is one where our listeners might be even able to help us identify people to discuss this with. Because That's what I was hoping. Yeah, because I, to tell you the truth, I'm not familiar with a lot of the research on this. Um, I, I know people who deal with it, but they deal with it on a very irregular basis, not on a like a professional basis on a day to day basis, thinking about these things. So I, it's, it's a cool topic, though. And I know there are lots of situations where we're always doing little things to make it more palatable or to to do something to make it more aesthetically pleasing that I don't know. I hope there's a lot about out there about it. So if anybody has on a, any ideas on a really good guest that could speak to these issues. Send us a line in the Dropbox. We'd appreciate it. And we now have, if you send us, Greg, we could send somebody something for this, right? Oh, yeah. If we do have, um, we have swag. special gifts. We have mm-hmm. swag. And Very you, special. Yeah. So just let us know and um, and let us know how many people you're drinking with, too. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. If if you didn't hand them all out at the <laughs> SAF convention. Yeah. yeah. No. No more. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Silvacast. If you have ideas for future episodes or a question for the Dropbox, please let us know. You can reach us at UW-Stevens Point's Wisconsin Forestry Center by emailing wfc at uwsp.edu. Feel free to include a sound file of your question or a comment if you like. We learn best when we wrestle with questions, so keep them coming. And take care, everyone. And as always, thanks to our team... Susan Barrett, our Editor-in-Chief, Logan Koseha, our IT Master, theme music by Paul Frader, and of course, UW-Stevens Point's Wisconsin Forestry Center.